Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 159. Today's topic is DSA's Green New Deal, it's part 12. We'll be talking about DSA's Green New Deal in a few minutes, but first, here's what the Climate Report is all about. So it cannot be emphasized too often or too strongly that we have serious problems to solve. Climate change is the foremost of the problems that we have to solve, but it's not the only problem we have to solve. There are others that are almost in the same league. I frequently say that there are five threats to our very existence. Three of them could wipe us out in a short period of time, and the other two would take a while, but they're still very serious. Now, I wish I didn't have to be telling you this. I wish this weren't true, because there, if it weren't true, there are other things I would like to be doing. So, the five threats are climate change, loss of biodiversity, war, including nuclear war, precarious supplies of water, diminishing supplies of fresh water, and a completely 100% unsustainable food system. So we have these five very serious threats to our very existence, and yet, and yet, and yet, we have no leadership. In my estimation, 99% of the people in Congress have no plan for solving any of these problems. Only 1% of the people in Congress are serious about solving these problems. The rest are just playing games and wasting our time. And that includes, in my opinion, all eight of the people that represent Kentucky in the United States Congress. So the reason I say that 99% of people in Congress have no serious desire to solve these problems is that I believe that anybody who takes corporate money is not serious about solving climate change or any of the other four problems that I named. Anybody who is taking corporate money is playing the money game instead of representing the people and providing leadership. The reason I say there are 1% of the people in Congress that are serious about solving these problems is that there are 535 people in Congress and there are only about five people who got elected without taking corporate money. Or maybe they took corporate money in the past, but they have sworn off corporate money. So I say that 99% of people in, in Congress are not willing or able to provide leadership. Here's what I mean by leadership. Have you ever gotten into a little discussion with somebody, a political discussion, and it just goes nowhere? And yet you know that there are serious facts and considerations that, you're not, that they're not considering, that they're not even thinking about. So here's how I've decided to deal with situations like that. I might not say anything. I might not say to the other person what I'm going to tell you now. But what I'm thinking, if I don't say it, is where's your plan? Do you have a plan? That's leadership if you have a plan. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, but it stars John Candy and Steve Martin. 
and they're these two guys that get stuck together while they're traveling. They meet on this trip, and then they some, something gets delayed, and they have to share transportation together, and they have to share a hotel room together. So it's these two very different guys that get that are forced to be together for a little while. And John Candy is this jolly guy who's always he's always happy and he's always talking. And Steve Martin is this quiet guy who just wants to be quiet and wants to be left alone. Well, at one point, Steve Martin gets fed up. You know, John Candy's just talking on and on and on and on and on. And uh, Steve Martin just gets fed up with it. And, and he, he tells him off, and then he, he ends it by saying, the next time you open your mouth, would you just have a point? That's all. Have a point. So that's what I feel like saying to people sometimes, except I say have a plan. The ne- if you're going to be serious in a political discussion, would you have a plan? Because I have a plan. My plan is some version of the Green New Deal. I didn't invent it myself, but I can show you a plan for the United States of America, and I can say, here is a plan. And if you don't have, if you know, my political opponent, if you don't have a plan, then stop taking yourself so darn seriously. And stop expecting me or anybody else to take you seriously if you do not have a plan. So as I shared with you, Kentucky has eight Congress, eight people in Congress, uh, eight people in the United States Congress, two senators and six Congress people. Of those eight, there are seven Republicans and one Democrat, and none of them have a plan for solving these problems that we have. So they should stop taking themselves so seriously and they should they should not want anybody to take them seriously. I can assure you Mitch McConnell does not have a plan for solving climate change or nuclear war or diminishing scarce diminishing supplies of water or a completely and entirely unsustainable food system or rapidly diminishing biodiversity, also known as the sixth great extinction. We are on this earth, we are losing species faster than at any time in the last 65 million years. And I can assure you that Mitch McConnell, senator from Kentucky, does not have a plan for solving those problems. If he does, then he should produce a plan, but he doesn't want to do anything but block forward progress and serve money. Our other senator is Rand Paul, and he seems to be a pretty sincere guy. I'm glad that he is opposed to America's interventionist wars. I'm glad he's opposed to America's regime change wars. I'm glad he believes that we should get out of all these wars that we have around the globe, and that we should close some of the 800 military bases we have overseas. But as far as I can tell, he does not take climate seriously, and he has never heard about the problem with biodiversity. And if he has heard of it, he does not have a plan. If he has a plan, he should tell us 
what his plan is, and he should make it an issue. So that's our two senators. The congressperson from uh, Louisville is John Yarmouth, and I've looked up everything he's ever said about the Green New Deal, and I can assure you he does not have a plan because he is at best lukewarm, at best lukewarm about the Green New Deal. He says things like, I don't think it can be justified from a fiscal standpoint. I don't know if we can put that in the budget. And he's the chairman of the budget committee in Congress. Chairman of the budget committee is so uninformed and unenthusiastic about the Green New Deal that he just categorically dismisses it. He said there might be things in there that we should look at. Might. Might. It's like, John, don't, do you have better things to do than to save our species? Apparently so. But I digress. So we have big problems. We have no leadership. What's the solution? The solution is a popular uprising. The solution is a popular revolution. Nonviolent, but a popular revolution. The people in government need popular pressure to be put on them. Let me give you an example in the past when popular pressure made a difference in an otherwise unwilling president. So, the federal government has some good laws on the books related to environment. They have been whittled down and pushed back and in many respects nullified by our current government. But most of the good environmental legislation that we have was enacted between 1963 and 1972. Most of that was enacted after 1968. Guess who was president from 1969 to 72? Richard Milhouse Nixon. So Richard Milhouse Nixon signed into law most of the good, solid environmental regulations that we now enjoy. Things like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and the Endangered Species Act. Now, why did he do that? Nixon was not an environmentalist. He did that because he was afraid of the protesters. He had buses lined up end-to-end end all the way around the White House to provide a barricade between the protesters and the White House. And the protesters were outside, and Nixon was inside, and he happened to be in the Oval Office talking to his National Security Advisor, Henry Kissinger. And according to Kissinger, Nixon said, Henry, they're going to come in and get us. That's where we want our elected officials to be. We want them to be afraid of us, not afraid of violence, but afraid of getting their sorry butts voted out of office if they're not providing the leadership that we need. Now, historically... It only takes 3.5% of the population to provide a, enough support for a popular, nonviolent 
revolution. This according to a really sharp guy by the name of Kevin Zeese with popularresistance.org. I urge you to look up Kevin Zeese on YouTube and on Google, and I urge you to get the daily email from popularresistance.org. It's one of the it's a it's a daily email. It's one of the best sources I know of to get the truth about what's happening around the world. They'll usually have six or seven articles every day, excellent articles. But according to Kevin Zeese, you don't need 51% of the people to be involved. You need 3.5% of the people to be involved and provide the support for a successful non-violent revolution. That's how you do this popular uprising that I'm talking about. And that's what we need because there's one thing, Ralph Nader said this, there's one thing that politicians fear more than money, and that is votes. One thing they love and fear more than money is votes. So the way we do this, the way we do this popular uprising, is the three pillars of activism. Are you ready? Educate, organize, agitate. Educate yourself and others. Organize so that when you speak out, it's not just you, but it's a lot of people because you're organized. See, there are people in this, there are thousands of people in this town who feel just like you do on the important issues. Where are they? They don't know you and you don't know them. The solution is to organize. So educate yourself and others and then organize and then agitate. And that's what the climate report is all about. By the way, that story about Nixon and Kissinger, I owe that to Chris Hedges, so I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Look up Chris Hedges on YouTube. Read his books. Great stuff. This program is part of WFMP's Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of the speaker and not the station. To the extent that I mention any people or organizations in this program, I'm giving my own opinions and not theirs. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback, please email info at theclimatereport.net. And if you enjoy this content, I invite you to go to theclimatereport.net theclimatereport.net to find more episodes and playlists and also my blog. That's theclimatereport.net. Now, this is part 12 of our treatment of DSA's Green New Deal. But one thing I meant to mention a while ago is that why is the Green New Deal all that? Why is the Green New Deal so important? Now, note that the Green New Deal is not just one thing. Congress has a version of the Green New Deal. Green Party has a version of the Green New Deal. Democratic Socialists of America have a version of the Green New Deal, and there are other organizations that have their own version, but those are the big three. There's also something called the Off Fossil Fuels Act in Congress that was sponsored by my favorite Hawaiian, Tulsi Gabbard. 
So DSA's version of the Green New Deal has seven principles. We are on principle number four. Guiding principle number four says we are going to decommodify survival. I love that, decommodify survival. By guaranteeing living wages, health care, child care, housing, food, water, energy, public transit, a healthy environment, and other necessities for all. We're going to spend our remaining 12 or 13 minutes on this because my conservative and libertarian friends are breaking out in hives. How can the government possibly provide all these things? Well, for one thing, it's going to be an entirely different government and an entirely different world. It, if we're going to create, if we're going to survive, let alone thrive, we need to reorganize our government and our priorities so that we are focused on the things that people need instead of being focused on a random economy that does more and more for less and less people because our economy is completely and totally organized around profit and accumulation. And in order to get there, it, they decided in the 40s and the 50s that it has to be organized around mass consumption. They decided in the 50s that if we're going to have a dynamic economy, it's going to be three things. Consume, 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 baby. That's what it's all about. Consume like there's no tomorrow. So we're going to have to shift from consume, consume, consume to a society and an economy that actually has a plan. Now, there are some people, there are a lot of conservative voters who think that thou shalt not have a plan for the economy because that, is, that smacks of communism. That brings to mind Stalin's five-year plans, and that's Russia. And Russia failed, and Russia was bureaucratic, and Russia was authoritarian. But what such people don't know is that the Green New Deal, which is sometimes called socialism, and I'm okay with it being called socialism. I'm okay being called a socialist as long as somebody knows what I mean by that term. So if you read the Green New Deal and you see what it says, what you'll find is that if and when we implement the Green New Deal, it will be more democracy than we have ever seen. I like saying that we have never seen democracy. The United States is supposed to be this bastion of d democracy, but it has always been, at best, a limited democracy. When the Constitution was first drafted in 1787, they expanded democratic rights to the point that 6% of the people had the right to vote. 6%. You had to be white. You had to be male. You had to have property. If you were a woman, 
too bad you don't get to vote. Black, too, free black, slave, you don't have a chance, you don't have a right to vote. If you were Native American, you didn't have a right to vote. And yes, the right to vote was expanded to include women after a long struggle. It was in, expanded to include Afri African Americans after a long struggle in which the privileged, the privileged people did not easily give, extend those privileges. And Native Americans, at some point in time, got the right to vote. But now we have a situation in which our vote doesn't count for very much because no matter who we vote for, they're owned by the big banks, they're owned by oil companies, they're owned by agribusiness, they're owned by big pharmaceutical companies, they're owned by big insurance companies, they're owned by war profiteers. And when your congressperson or even the governor, the state senators and congresspeople, the local, when they go to vote on legislation, they are doing the bidding of big money unless, unless they are one of the few people, maybe 1% in Congress, who do not take corporate money. So we have a very limited democracy and we, re we really don't get to vote on economic issues. We don't get to vote on the things that matter to us. Two-thirds of the American people are for Medicare for all, but not one of our eight, Congre eight U.S. Congress people in Kentucky are in favor of Medicare for all. Two-thirds of people, or more, think that war should be a last resort and yet the people we send to Congress keep on voting to increase the defense budget, and now we're involved in who knows how many wars, and the CIA is always at war. Two-thirds of Americans are for a living wage, but yet that's not what we get. So we have a very limited democracy. So what I'm saying is, I just named a long list of things that are just going to be provided, just going to be provided, including living wages, health care, child care, housing, food, water, energy. doesn't mean all of our energy will be paid for, but it does mean the utilities will be publicly owned, not privately owned. These things are not going to be a commodity. We're going to decommodify survival. We're also going to provide public transit, a healthy environment, and other necessities for all. And all means all. So why would we provide free health care? So, you know, we know that the health care is not really free, that we, somebody pays for it in their taxes. But it's a progressive tax system where the cost of health care does not fall disproportionately on the poor and middle class such that they cannot afford health care. Every other industrialized country provides health care. In Norway, they don't say your health care is free. They say your health care is included. 
In other words, you are a citizen of this society. You pay taxes. Free health care is included. That's what's sometimes called the social wage. It says here that, okay, so we're going, it says child care. Well, we're going to provide free education and child care from, from, from birth through college. Why? Because this is an investment that pays for itself. Because, and, and, and it's free because in a modern and moral America, nobody should be too poor to live. We're not going to make people pay beyond their means for things that you need to live. And conservatives think they're asking like a gotcha question. I mean, I'm talking about so-called conservatives. These, these people are not true conservatives. I mean, there was a time, maybe, when conservatives believed in conservation, for example. Don't get me started about the difference between conservatives and conservatism. But conservatives, so-called conservatives, will say, how are you going to pay for that? Yeah, like they're really concerned about saving money. They're spending a trillion dollars a year. Maybe it's closer to a trillion and a half, but a trillion dollars a year on defense, which serves to destroy the planet, destroy countries, destroy communities, poison the environment. How are you going to pay for that? People who say, how are you going to pay for that, need to answer the question, how do we pay for the current system that we have? How can we possibly afford a trillion dollars a year on defense that does not defend us? And how can we possibly afford to spend $20 billion a year subsidizing fossil fuels? That's what we spend out of pocket. The government spends out of pocket $20 billion a year to subsidize oil, coal, and natural gas. How can we possibly afford that? Worldwide, we spend $5 trillion a year subsidizing oil. Now, that, that's not a direct out-of-pocket subsidy, but what's included in that is that when somebody gets sick because of exposure to fossil fuels, then they and the insurance company and their families, they're paying for those fossil fuel industries. If the fossil fuel companies had to pay had to pay the true cost of fossil fuels, they would go out of business tomorrow. So how can we afford to have fossil fuel companies shift onto us five trillion dollars a year worldwide? How can we afford that? How can we afford here's the last thing. How can we afford endless consumption? How can we afford endless, unlimited consumption, all of which has an environmental impact? And last but not least, how can we afford to go forward with no plan? We need a plan. The Green New Deal is that plan 
We should be saying to our political opponents, if you don't have, if you don't adopt the Green New Deal, then what is your plan? I need to see a plan. Do you even know anybody, talking to our political opponents, do they even know anybody who has a plan? They don't have a plan, and they don't know anybody that has a plan, and their staff is not doing any research on what is the plan for saving the human species. It's time for these clowns to get another job. And that's all I have to say about that. I'm glad you joined me. Hope you come back uh, next time, and uh, have a nice day.